The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Here's your employment card, your card of identity, your health and welfare card, your credit card, and a free ride home. Good day, number six. Number what? Six. For official purposes, everyone has a number. Yours is number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Six of one, half a dozen of another. I will not make any deals with you. I've resigned. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. Is it? Yes. You won't hold me. Won't we? Let me prove that we will. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 1, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, <coughs> color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be... And welcome to the show today, where we have in studio a special guest who has been on our show before, Professor Salim Mansour. Now, Professor Mansour is a professor here at the University of Western Ontario in the Department of Political Science, and he's also the author of a previous book, Islam's Predicament, Perspectives of a Dissident Muslim and co-editor of Indira Rajivir's The Indian Economy and Polity, 1966-1991. Professor Mansour is also a nationally syndicated columnist for the Sun Chain of Newspapers here in Canada and recipient of the American Jewish Congress's The Stephen S. Weiss Humanitarian Award, Profiles in Courage, back in 2006. He's currently the author of, and the reason why we're in studio today, the book Delectable Lie, A Liberal Repudiation of Multiculturalism. Welcome to the show, Salim. Thank you, Bob. So... A delectable lie, a liberal repudiation of multiculturalism. That title in itself says a lot. First of all, why this book? Why now? Well, the timing of the book uh, is, I think, fortuitous. It is not that I planned it. But the book was written over uh, last fall and this winter. And it just comes out right now. And it is very interesting that it comes out right now when um, there is much concern, um, both in Canada, but particularly in Europe, about where official multiculturalism is going. As a matter of fact, it's an extremely up-to-date book. It even has in there, for example, the acquittal of uh, Hert Wilders and um, most of the the, um, the free speech issues that have appeared in Canada over the last few years with Ezra Levant, Mark Stein. And so up-to-date, it certainly is. I, I'd say this is just like hot off the press. <laughs> That's correct. It was released yesterday, August 31st. Yes. So where can people purchase this book? First, let's get that out of the way first. Well, it sh it'll be available if it is not already available on, on Amazon.com. Or Amazon.ca? Um, also on CA, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, and from directly from the publisher, MantuaBooks.com. Um, and I'm advised by my publisher that either now or by early next week, 
It should be in some of the main chapters outlet across the country, in some of the bookstores here at UWO Bookstore. I think it should be available. Excellent. And uh, I've, I've read your book, and it is a fascinating treatise on multiculturalism written for the layperson as well as an academic, I would say, because you have a, a, an extreme broad scope here going right from the origins of our liberal democracy right through to freedom of speech issues, our, our history as a, a nation of immigration, right up to the problems we're facing now and especially over in Europe and all the problems that they're facing with multiculturalism as an official government policy. But let's start off first with one of the words in your title, a liberal repudiation of multiculturalism. Liberal. Are you a liberal? And if so, what kind of liberal are you? Um, thanks, Bob. I mean, that's, that's I think, uh, a, a most important question and a central question of our time in Canada. And as you will note in the subtitle of the book, uh, the liberal is with a small letter L. Uh, so that is a very definitive distinction from the big letter L of the Liberal Party and the big letter L liberalism. Certainly, but, but you know, you yourself are seen as a bit of a conservative, aren't you? And so, so uh, a liberal repudiation from a conservative is a little bit of a strange mix for some people, isn't it? At least as they might perceive you to be. That's correct. I mean, there can be confusion. Mm -hmm. uh, labels often do not carry the actual message. Conservatives in North America, whether they are in Canada or the United States, are not conservatives of the Tory kind in the United Kingdom. I mean, that was the conservatism that has its origin in the defense of the aristocracy and the aristocratic position. Uh, conservatism in North America is classical liberalism. Uh, that is what classical liberalism begins with and stands for. And big L liberals have basically forgotten it or uh, um, scrapped it. That is, the essence being freedom. It is a defense of freedom. It is a standing up for freedom. And it begins with the issue of individual rights and the freedom of the individual person. So this sort of implies that our big L liberals today, whether they be federal or provincial, have lost the roots of real liberalism, of classical liberalism. And I'd actually have to uh, agree with what you've said in the book about this, that they have lost the roots. They are completely different. In fact, they are destroying the ideas of liberal democracy and liberalism. Would you expand on that a bit? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, again, from putting on my academic hat, though this book was not written for academic purposes. Uh, I wanted it to be accessible to as many people as I could reach out to or who would be interested to read it. But to put it in context, you're absolutely right, Bob. The, the most ancient struggle is between the individual and the collective the individual right and the group right and the collective right. And the collective comes to be represented by the state, who controls the state and the power of the state. And so the struggle is between to what extent the individual will be free from the arrogant powers of the state to run his or her life. Big L liberalism is all about promoting the state, of expanding the powers of the state. And so this is, becomes a zero-sum game. As the power of the state is expanded, the individual freedom is diminished. So, so are you saying that 
individual rights as such you would define as a liberal value, small l, uh, strictly? Well, that's what I said, Bob, that but the so, origin of classical... I mean, if you uh, go understood, back... Yeah, understood, yeah. understood. But, but even in today's context, therefore, would that mean that individual rights is not shared by conservatives? Because I see the opposite in people who call themselves conservatives. No, I think, I think you or, misunderstood me. Yeah, I, I just, I just pointed, sure. out, yeah. I pointed out that conservatives are the classical liberal, right. or at least those conservatives who have really examined the basis of what they are struggling and fighting with. Take the case in the United States. The issue is conservatism as opposed to necessarily Republican Party. The Republican Party is the vehicle, the instrument of conservatism. But what is conservatism in the United States? Take the case of Ronald Reagan. It was about individual freedom. It was about rolling back the powers of the state. That is getting the constitutional balance right. Minimum government as opposed to mm -hmm. maximum government. There's another interesting word in the title of your book, and that is the word delectable itself. Uh, you know, I, I actually looked that, that word up. Did you do that, Robert? And I thought it says giving great pleasure, delightful. Um, you know, when I see that, is not anything that could be called delectable almost something impossible to resist in a way? Is, is that part of the problem? Is it... Is it is this this form of multiculturalism a social addiction of some sort? Is does it make it make us feel good? Well, well, it, th that's what I was trying to get out, you know. And yeah. I hope that people will pause and think what it is, you know, delectable life. As you say, Bob, yeah. delectable is something that is pleasant, something that is attractive, you know, in terms of cuisine, something that is tasty. But many cuisine that is tasty can also be destructive to health, and so the other. <laughs> It's lie, you know, and and multiculturalism is the lie that is so pleasingly, you know, packaged and was packaged and is sold. And so that is the delectable lie. And a liberal repudiation is the classical liberal repudiating the very structure, the foundation and the ideology of multiculturalism. So getting back to the actual ideology, if you will, of liberal democracy as opposed to that of multiculturalism, yeah, there's an excellent quote here in your book from historian A.J.P. Taylor who describes life in England pre-August 1914. And I'd just like to, to quote part of that quote uh, so that we can get a sort of an idea of what we mean, a little slice of life, if you will, of, of a liberal democracy before modern times, before World War I. He says, Until August 1914, a sensible, law-abiding Englishman could pass through life and hardly notice the existence of the state beyond the post office and the policeman. He could live where he liked and as he liked. He had no official number or identity card. He could travel abroad or leave his country forever without a passport or any sort of official permission. He could exchange his money for any other currency without restriction or limit. He could buy goods from any country in the world on the same terms as he bought them at home. For that matter, a foreigner could spend his life in this country without permit and without informing the police. Sort of that's why we had that little bit of an intro from the prisoner there. I am not a number. I am a, I am a person. But is that something that we want today in our nation state um, societies? If we're going to be talking about immigration and multiculturalism, and perhaps later on in the show we may be talking about restricting such things, wouldn't it be a good idea for people to be identifiable to the state? Well, classical liberals and A.G.P. Taylor that you cited, uh, the quote that I used in my book, are not anarchists. They're not, again, to make the clear distinction, which is often lost, they're not libertarians. They are not anti-state. The necessity of a state is the social contract of individuals 
to provide for at the basic security, security of the individual, security of the collective as people coming together to form a political entity. So the classical liberals are not anti-state. The question is to what extent the state overwhelms the individual. Uh, it is interesting that the classical period, I mean, A.G.P. Taylor was pointed out, the classical period of the, where liberalism flourished in its finest sense in modern time was 100 years before World War I, 1815, 1914. Well, what happened afterward? Well, this is, again, philosophically and in politics, the huge corrupting experience of Marxism. And we have seen the result of 20th century history. We are in the 21st century. So that's the comparative sense to understand where we have come to. Now, the, the bigger liberals are the wolves and sheep clothing. They are the ones who are basically taken in whole the doctrine of Marx in, 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 in all its various forms and have packaged it and wants to sell it. That is the state from cradle to grave, you know, and they're going to manage our affairs. That is the affair of the individual. That state should be rolled back because the loss of freedom is the loss of who we are as individuals. That's what the classical liberals stood for. That's what I stand for. That's what multiculturalism is, the delectable lies, another packaging to create the nanny state. Robert and I were talking last night about this very concept, um, the quote that Robert just read about the freedom people enjoyed at one point in the world. And is that something that's desirable today? I had an interesting comment to make about it, and it struck me that I think part of that freedom that people had was what gave us that liberal democracy. People, If people could travel everywhere relatively freely, then they could see what's going on in the world. They could see what was happening. And it would be less corrupting for the rest of the world if it wasn't as isolated. Does that match with your thinking in a way? Yes. I don't, I don't, I don't see the freedom of the individual as being in conflict with the idea of a proper state. No, it is not, and it never was. No, the state doesn't need to know I'm here. I, I, how many times have we visited the United States without them having to know we're there? Right? I, I was just being the devil's no, advocate I, there. I, I, I swear, I agree with both of you, of course. I understand entirely, and I think this is a good time to uh, take our first break for a smile. We're going to listen in on Russell Peters, and he's got a few things to say about race and culture as well. We'll be back right after this. Wonderful. Everybody's got this race-culture issue in this country, you know? Anywhere, you know, there's a big difference between race and culture. Because racially, I'm an Indian man. Culturally, not at all. <laughs> Many of you may think you're Indian or, you know, some people think they're Italian, but then they've never been to Italy in their life. They don't speak Italian. It's, it always bugs me out when they call black people in America African-Americans. You're not African. <laughs> you're black. If a black guy showed up in Africa tomorrow, what's happening? You'd be like, that's crazy. Get him away from me. They'd be looking for a white guy. Oh, my God, thank God you're here. <laughs> Those brothers over there, aren't they mine? <laughs> Same thing for me. You know, there's a big difference between race and culture. Because all my life, I've been identifying myself as an Indian man. I'm always like, I'm Indian. Yeah, what are you? I'm Indian. Yeah, where are you from? I'm Indian. What do you mean, where am I from? I'm Indian. <laughs> Then I realized something. I was born and raised in Canada. There's nothing Indian about me. The only thing Indian about me are my parents and my skin tone. That's it. Culturally, I'm not Indian at all. And the only reason I know this is because last year I went to India to do some shows. And I thought I was Indian. 
And when we were flying over to India, I had this overwhelming Indian feeling. Inside of me, I was like, I'm the most Indian man ever. I just thought I was so Indian, you know? We arrived in Bombay, I was like yelling at the flight attendant, open the doors to this plane. Let me at my Indian people. Let me show those Indians what it's like to be Indian. She opened the doors to that plane, I turned Canadian so fast. I was like, I am so... So I'm Jewish. Hold for applause. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Toda Rabah. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm not very religious though. I kind of feel like Judaism is a double-edged sword, you know? Because on one hand, yes, it's true. I'm going to win an Emmy. <laughs> you know? At some point, I'm going to win an Emmy. Whatever, that's fine. I'm fine with that. But on the other hand, you have to remember, I'm never gonna dunk a basketball. <laughs> or feel comfortable in a convertible. <laughs> or know what heaven feels like. <laughs> oh, speaking of the Messiah, I really like Barack Obama. I love, I do, yeah. Yeah, I love Barack Obama, I do, I love him. I voted for him like three times. And I know some people don't like Obama, and you know, they have the, the, you know, the right to be racist, but <laughs> I really, I love Obama. And just before that break there, we were talking about identity politics, but I just have to say, you really love that clip from Russell Peters, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's me. He's <laughs> yeah. So identity politics is a term that I think you've quoted in the book. And I really enjoy that term because it seems to encapsulate the entire motif of multiculturalism that we're experiencing right now. By the way, multiculturalism that... I, I should, you should preface the word official multiculturalism. Do you think that's what we should do first of all? Preface multiculturalism where the official... Isn't there a difference? Yeah, I think so. Official multiculturalism is the responsibility of the state that takes upon itself to tell us how to live our lives. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily multiculturalism that, we're, that we have a problem with. It is official multiculturalism. The, the, the state taking over um, the makeup of society, making sure that all cultures are treated equally, even though later on in the book you illustrate quite, quite clearly they are not. Mm -hmm. uh, and I agree with that. But the idea of identity politics, what do you, you talk about it a little bit in your, uh, in your book about how people seem to have this notion of calling themselves a hyphenated Canadian, a Hungarian Canadian, Indian Canadian, um, or belonging to a certain tribe or a certain culture or a certain state prior to coming to Canada. What is it about the human psyche that seems to want to identify themselves as where they stand in relationship to their group. Yeah. What is that? Well, I mean, I, I devoted a whole chapter, uh, Bob, to um, to the question of identity politics and the 
And in our time, that is in the last 40 years with multiculturalism or official multiculturalism to the extent that it rests upon identity politics. But if you take it away in the larger philosophical historical sense, identity politics is a given. We are all struggling with our identity. I, I give the example of uh, Oedipus. I mean, if you will go back in history, you know, what, it, what is about identity? It is that we, we, we do not carry simple one identity. We are born with several identities and we live several identities. Uh, um, you know, um, we, we, we are what we are as a gender, male, female. We're born in a certain family. We grow up. We, be, we are students. We become teachers. We take on professions. You know, we are parents, father, mother, etc., etc., etc. And then, you know, there's a question of ethnic identity, religious identity, and so forth. So it, this is an oldest thing. You peel away like an onion, the skins, and you try to figure out who you are. But the problem is with multiculturalism, the emphasis is on ethnic or cultural identity and to put us there in that sense of the group. Ethnic and cultural identity, these are group identity. Classical liberalism or liberalism without putting the adjective classical is about the generic man, the essential man, stripped away of all identity. King Lear, stripped away of all identity. What is he? You know, his all is gone. There he is standing alone in the heat, you know. That's Oedipus, stripped away of all his identity. What is he? It's a generic man. When you respect a generic man, then you respect who he is. And a generic man is wearing different identities. So the respect of the generic man, generic man is a respect of the diversity of the world we live in. Multiculturalism, ad hominem use and abuse, misses the point. The world is multicultural. The world is diverse. You know, I and you sit together, you know. We carry different baggages. Alistair McIntyre, the great Anglo-American philosopher, says, we are born with a past, each one of us. The past is our identity. But it is to go beyond that, to transcend it, and to arrive at who we are as a generic man. And that's where we respect each other. Of who we are. That, that, that's an interesting term, the generic man. I kind of like it in a way. You know, you're bringing that up, brought up this next thought that I had. You know, there have been a, a, a small smattering of new books coming out, sort of critic, you know, critiques of the liberal viewpoint. You know, I've, I've just reviewed a book called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism. Of course, uh, Jonah Goldberg's Liberal Fascism, which you're probably uh, familiar with, America Alone with Mark Stein. And I noticed that a, a difference between your book and theirs, in, in a great degree, is that m much of their books have to do with pragmatic cause and effect. You seem to be going more for the values-based, uh, the theory of it, the, the, what's at the root. And that's why I think you've come up with this generic man idea. It kind of separates your, your angle from theirs. And I think it uh, fills in that missing piece. Is that... Do you see sort of a difference between... I don't know how familiar you are, you well, are with those other yeah, books. I'm, I'm very familiar yeah. with, the, with the books that you have mentioned mm -hmm. and the writers that you have mentioned. Um, the idea of generic man is not some eureka discovery on my no, part. No. You know, it, It's been there. It's part of... You go back to Locke. You go back to John Stuart Mill. Precisely. You go, you yeah. know, it, it, it is, that is the essential thing. Here is the paradox, uh, uh, Bob. Um, multiculturalism is so insistent upon treating all cultures equally and respectfully and so on and so forth, you know, and that's official multiculturalism. And the paradox is that those who promote it 
that is in the Western world. In in this is not a phenomenon that is being promoted in China or India or Japan. It is being promoted in Western countries, which are liberal democracies, and the people who are promoting mm-hmm. it and insisting upon it, they are the ones who deny the uniqueness of the liberal democratic culture. I think you mentioned <laughs> that they, you call them guilt peddlers at one point, don't they, you? They, they, well, when you trace it all, then there are guilt peddlers. But here, the point I'm driving at is that liberal democracy is itself a unique development in human history. The fact that it was born, it grew, it flourished, it nurtured, you know, in Western Europe, in Europe, and then from there it came to North America. And there's a long history. We don't have the time to go into it. But that it was born doesn't mean that it is now remains simply a Western idea. It is a universal idea. Should, the should, should the emphasis, then... the cause, the issues that say Mill fought for, or we're going all the way back to John Milton, who fought for, and as I point out, beginning with the question of freedom of speech, and I hope you'll come to it, this is a universal idea. No man is an island? Is mm-hmm. that no man is an island. So, so we should be seeking more to properly define liberalism rather than to condemn it out, outright? Would that be a better approach? No, the, thing, or, the, the better approach is to rediscover what we have lost, to reemphasize mm-hmm. this was the strength upon which was built the wonder of the Western civilization, the defense of individual freedom, putting man at the center of the moral universe. I mean, this is a struggle which is part of Western history, but it goes universal. We're talking about, in the British sense, 800 years of history from Magna Carta onwards, specifically then in European history. I make allusions to it, you know. The last 500 years, Renaissance, Reformation, counter-reformation, the struggle of enlightenment, scientific revolution, various revolution. Look, the American Revolution is a child of this struggle that was born. And it is in this document, its founding document, you see the finest reflection of what Locke was arguing about, the, the, the defense of the principle of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you think there, there's an example in your book that I particularly enjoyed, and that was of the uh, recent evacuation of Lebanese hyphenated Canadians from Lebanon during the crisis over there a couple of years ago. Um, Isn't that an excellent example of identity politics at work uh, where Canadians, hyphenated Canadians, find it very convenient to go to Lebanon and know that full well that the Canadian government is going to yank them out of there whenever they go into trouble at our expense, and then come back here as if we're some sort of posh hotel that they can stay over until they want to go back to their home country and their real country, if you if you want to put it that way. That was an excellent example. Is that not what you might call uh, identity well, politics? Or? Yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, I mean that's what multiculturalism, official multiculturalism in the last 40 years have done. We have basically diluted the sense of who we are as Canadians, you know, as, as North Americans, as, as Western Europeans, you know. And what we have done by diluting it and hyphenating ourselves, we have parceled out the issue of our citizenship to dual citizenship, multiple citizenship, and consequently, you know, where does an individual belong? And it leads to also the exploitation of what is the generosity, the strength of our own system of government and our own society that that was created on the building blocks of liberal democracy. Are we uh, ready for a break, Robert? I think so. Okay, we're at the bottom of the hour right now, and uh, we're going to take a quick break for another couple of smiles. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with a discussion of the elephant in the room. And we'll be back after this.
have this one white girlfriend, love her to death, but she gets real nervous whenever she has to use the word black around me. Some of y'all know somebody like that? The rest of you are somebody like that? Why did it get so quiet? Why is it so quiet? Yeah, I don't know what that is. We were in Starbucks uh, recently and uh, we were standing in line and she tapped me on my shoulder and she was like, hey, EJ, I think that guy over there is checking you out. And I was like, where girl, which one? And she was like, the, the one over there. The tall one in the blue shirt, wearing the do-rag. The baggy jeans and the Timberland boots, don't you see them? And I was like, really, Carrie, are you sure you didn't leave anything out? <laughs> we finally get to the register and she's like, yeah, I would like a tall coffee with no sugar and no cream and a do-rag. I was like, black, I say black, you cannot put a do-rag on coffee. Black folks, we do not have that issue. It does not matter what your race is. If we like you enough, we'll just make it a part of your name. Yeah. Like, hey, y'all, I want y'all to meet my boys. This right here is White Mike. <laughs> it's Chinese Steve and Indian Tim. Best friends. My cousin Lonnie won't buy or eat fried chicken if there are white folks around. Yeah. Because he thinks that would be feeding into the racial stereotype that black people love fried chicken. Thing is, y'all, he's 39 years old. He lives at home with his mom. He has four kids by three different women. And he hasn't had a steady job in two years. Yet fried chicken is a stereotype that he is concerned about perpetuating. Do you see the flaw in that logic? <laughs> I had to tell him, like, Lonnie, seriously, if you want to tackle a stereotype, you should start with a resume. <laughs> and a condom. Just keeping it real. Exciting stuff, I guess. I don't know. My name is Nate. Uh, last name is Bargetti. I'm Italian. I am. But I'm from the South, so I'm not really, like, I got an accent. So I'm not accepted by the Italians. Like, I'm not in. It just doesn't work out. Like, I could go to the Mafia and be like, so what are y'all doing? Like, <laughs> what, what's happening? I like spaghetti. I would like to join. I like what y'all are about. I do. I like y'all's whole deal. <laughs> Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call if you wish to join the conversation at 519-661-3600. You can also email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, where at justrightmedia.org you'll also find all of our archived shows, including this one within a few hours. So we're joined in studio today by UWO professor Salim Mansour, and we're talking about his new book, Delectable Lie, A Liberal Repudiation of Multiculturalism. And Salim, I'm just looking through the book here, and near the end we talk about, or you talk about, multiculturalism, I'm quoting here now, multiculturalism works to weaken or dissolve citizenship identity by suggesting that the cultural identities which immigrants bring with them deserve to be recognized and treated with equal respect. Now, I think that this actually touches on the lie, doesn't it? What is the big lie about multiculturalism? Well, 
the fundamental lie of multiculturalism, which I set up right in the beginning of the book, and then the whole book is variation in tracing it, is the assumption, the premise that all cultures are equal. All cultures are not equal, never have been equal. Uh, by what the, standard? And of course, by what standard? You know, uh, there are criteria. I mean, if you're going to judge culture and cultural achievement in, in art and in sciences and philosophy and literature, in the politics of governance and so on, um, what, what is the criteria that says, you know, uh, to our human rights commissioners that all cultures are equal, you know? Where have they established it? So it hasn't been, and it cannot be, because the fact of the matter is that all cultures are not equal. How how can I have any respect for the Chinese communist culture that has a gag order on everyone that you cannot speak, you know, speak freely? Uh, we saw the result with the Soviet culture that collapsed and imploded. How can a culture that is still trapped within the circumstances and the values that degrade the rights of women be equal to the culture that treats all genders equally. So these are fundamental questions. And of course, the multicultural uh, culturalist proponents, the proponents of multiculturalism, they don't want to address these questions because their entire superstructure of this official ideology is built on lies. If you strip them away, it just collapses. So we have a caller on the line here. So um, Scott has called us. Hello, Scott, are you there? Yes. I really uh, like what the professor is talking about, and I just wanted to make a comment on uh, official multiculturalism. It seems that what they're trying to do uh, is not what they're achieving. They're, They're setting out to make everybody feel like a part of one society where we all get along, but with official multiculturalism, all they're doing is resupporting the fact that we are all different. And in, in Canada, they spend resources and our time uh, inundating us with supporting the fact that we're all different and it, it, they're not achieving what they're setting up to do, whereas we should embrace all of us as just Canadians rather than a hyphenated Canadian because all it's doing is re-supporting the fact that, oh, that person is, you know, African, that person is Indian, when really we're all just Canadians. It's an interesting observation you make, Scott, because if I interpret this right, are you saying in a way that the liberal, quote, attempt to help minorities is sort of a symptom of their belief in the inferiority of those targeted minorities? Is that what you think is coming across, or is it just a misintention or, or, or intentions gone wrong? What, what I think their intentions are is to make the majority of society believe that they're trying to say we're all equal um and if you strip things down to the barest form yes we are all equal but what they're trying to do is they're trying to make themselves seem like they're doing this great big thing for multiculturalism when to the ordinary citizen all they're doing is bringing that fact back up again that people are different from each other and people can become irritated or resentful towards um, those minorities or ethnic groups when what really should be done is just saying, we're all Canadian, you know, we share this country together, we we strip everything downward, the same people, you know. So I I just think that what they're trying to do is 
the exact opposite of what's actually happened. I, I think I'd have to agree with you there, Mike, and thank you very much for the call. Salim, what do you what do you make of that observation? Well, that's part of the, my book, you know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, technically, you know, this is where I think the country is, and this is where Europeans are today. We've had a 40-year exp- experimentation with this set of official policy, and we see more of it, you know, doesn't work. Uh, and if it works, it works to the disadvantage of the very foundational values on which liberal democracy is built. Well, it's not only that. I think Scott was making a, a sort of a point there that there's almost a backlash reaction to official multiculturalism if the state says that your culture is as equal as this culture when obviously we all can see that they are not equal. People are going to resent that and may even resent the individuals from that culture because they are getting special treatment when they shouldn't be. Well, this is this has led to the problem of freedom of speech. I mean, well, this is where the whole problem is. When you start stopping people from discussing and talking about this, this is where the state is coming in and saying you cannot say this, you cannot say that, and that's where the whole problem of political correct language comes in. Now, in your book, you actually do a great synopsis of many of the of the trials and tribulations of people like Ezra Levant, Mark Stein, and Coulter, uh, Herd Wilders and how they are examples of the state using its use of force to prevent them from talking about the very issue we're talking about now under the the lie that all cultures are equal now let's get to the crux of it when we talk all cultures are equal we're not simply talking about a problem with chinese or ex-soviet or any other asian countries we're talking about islam and islamism and we're talking about the middle east aren't we Yes. I mean, the, the problem of the last 10 years, to be specific, has been the problem of trying to deal with Islamism and the politics of terrorism and all that comes with it, you know. But again, to me, it is not simply identifying one issue. Islamism is the big elephant in the room, but it is the universal issue. And let me, if you permit me, let me on, on this matter just read to you uh, the words that I cite of Liu Zhaobo, who has been... Uh, incarcerated by the Chinese communists and who was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace in 2010 and I think the Nobel Prize Committee basically somewhat redeemed itself after having given the same prize to Al Gore and Obama without you know any basis and justification and here is what Liu Xiaobo has to say and this is something a Chinese is saying I mean it could be a Soviet dissident citizen saying, or a Muslim like me being saying which the West has forgotten and is forgetting because of official multiculturalism and is backtracking away from what was this universal value. So this is Liu Zhaobo. Freedom of expression is the foundation of human rights, the source of humanity and the mother of truth. To strangle freedom of speech is to trample on human rights, stifle humanity and suppress truth. I think the words of Liu Zhaobo should be, you know, uh, printed across our, 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 wherever we can in Canada and elsewhere as a reminder. This was the great struggle that began way back going to say John Milton or Magna Carta. And now we have people in Ottawa, in Toronto and, and other parts of our country sitting and telling us, telling you, telling me, telling Scott, telling whoever that you cannot say this, you cannot write this, you cannot speak this, you know. On what basis, on what grounds? Uh, Elias Canati, another great Nobel Prize winning writer from the 1980-81, he says, the origin of freedom lies in breathing. 
And the thought police are trying to suffocate us. Well, that was a great experiment in the Soviet Union, and look where it led to. That's what's happening in China. Now, Stephen Harper, in a Maclean's Magazine article many years ago, when he was the head of the um, NCC? That was one of the groups, yeah. Yeah, the National <laughs> Citizens Coalition, um, actually said that the Human Rights Commissions here in Canada are a great... Um, totalitarian device. I don't know his exact words. I don't have it in front of me, but that was the gist of it. And yet here we have Mr. Harper, now Prime Minister, and yet we still have the Human Rights Commissions. Do you have any hope that Mr. Harper will do the right thing and if not castrate these commissions, outright abolish them? Any hope in that? Well, I don't know about hope, you know, I and mean, bureaucracy seem to have a perpetual life cycle, mm. you know, and nothing can be brought down. One of the great things about classical liberal view is that any government policy should have a sunset rule, uh, you know, and so that we can examine it and, you know, we can do away with it. But we don't seem to have that. But we should be holding Stephen Harper responsible for what he used to say and what he's doing right now. That's what democracy is about. And so when he tries to suffocate us or the government tries to suffocate us, Stephen Harper, we have to hold the prime minister and his cabinet responsible. And that's the problem we are dealing with. I mean, a great chunk of my chapter on freedom of speech is about Canada, about Section 13 that, that violates freedom of speech. And, you know, we've gone through this with Mark Stein, Ezra Levant, and others. And it is a terrible blight on our country, on our society. We are one of the, at least we claim to be, one of the freest countries in the world. And then what is this Section 13 doing in our books? Exactly. We're going to take another short little break here, and when we come back, we're going to conclude our discussion today with Professor Slee Mansour with where do we go from here? What can we do to make sure that the official in multiculturalism is expunged? And we'll be back right after this. <laughs> Jews, I don't know how you got the title of being cheap. It's very offensive to Indian people. <laughs> and people are like, Jews are cheap. We're like, no, that is very incorrect. <laughs> I am cheap. <laughs> Jews are thrifty. Big difference. Because Jews aren't actually cheap. You know who's cheap? Asians. Chinese people specifically. Where are the Chinese people at? Where are you? Always the Wu family. Nice. Um, Chinese people, you are cheap. Like, it's crazy. But it's about levels. Like, if you were to rate, like, the top three cheap people in the world, Indians for sure would be number one on that list. See? See the pride in it? Oh, yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. We are Ekdam number one. We are. <laughs> Indians for sure, number one on that list. Very, very close second, Chinese. And Jews will give you third place, you know, just to keep you in the game. How about that, you know? So you don't feel like you're losing everything, all right? So. <laughs> with Indian people being cheap. Our cheapness actually changed the world. You see, you may be sitting there going, well, how did your cheapness change the world? Well, let me tell you how. Because our cheapness actually benefited everybody. We're so dedicated to being cheap for so long that Indian people actually created the number zero. 
Do you know how much dedication that took? That means, back in the day, some Indian guy was looking at the numeric system. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. None of those are amounts I want to pay. I, that was funny, I gotta admit. Um, <laughs> Russell Peters, of course. I don't know if that's true. I didn't know that there, this reputation was going around with all these different races. I guess I'm not clued into all of the, uh, the nuances of this. We were talking before the break about um, Salim Mansour in studio, about, um, I guess, trying to find a solution to the whole issue of what we call official multiculturalism. I saw an interesting article in this weekend's Islam View in the London Free Press that said something I don't often see said in this column. And it was talking a little bit, I guess the main theme was about domestic violence, but that wasn't the issue that caught my attention. And the writer, uh, Mohammed Baubade, uh, discussed the problems of Muslim families affected by domestic violence, but made a fascinating observation. And he said, the source of conflict lies in the expectations of a collectivist society of the immigrant family's past versus the pressures of the surrounding individualistic Western society. The most common conflict is between parents and children. Muslim parents expect obedience from their children. Muslim children may bring home attitudes and behavior absorbed from playmates or school authorities only to be told that these contradict family and community norms. Isn't that a great description of, of perhaps the culture class, clash we're talking about between that liberal individualism uh, clashing with the old values? And, you know, this is true, I think, of all immigrant families to some degree that have come here, that they found, you know, the West, North America different from their home country and that there were, was a clash, certainly m much more or let's say let's, much less authoritarianism in the home, per se. Is, is, is that maybe a hope of, of, of a future change, that, that the children are going to be the next generation that maybe has an influence on their parents? Maybe that's where the future of the change lies. I'm not sure. I, just, just, I thought that this observation kind of opened a door in a way. Well, Bob, that, that observation is excellent. And, and, and I think the man has, has basically got what, what is the problem. Uh, the, I, the I problem never saw is, it defined so well. Yeah. Well, the problem, yeah, and, and I said the problem is the oldest problem of the struggle between the individual and the collective. You know, I have quite often spoken about in public when I've had a chance to speak on this matter to define freedom. Uh, I have defined freedom, uh, you know, in recent time with, with the case, pointing out the case of Aksa Parvez, again, a Muslim uh, a woman, a female, a, in fact, a teenage girl, a young girl, uh, immigrant family, all that she wanted to do, she was growing up in Canada, all that she wanted to do was to live like a Canadian, be mm. free, be an individual, you know, and, and assert herself as an individual woman. And what happened to Aksa Parvez? She was killed by her own family, by her father and brothers, you know. She was strangled to death. And in a, in a sense, that captures the dilemma that this gentleman was talking about. Mm -hmm. Now, in the last few minutes that we have here, Salim, perhaps we can talk about any concrete ways that we can address this particular issue. Over in Europe, before, we, before it gets to the point where it is in uh, England, France, Germany, where they actually have no-go zones, where groups of Islamists have taken over a particular area 
and have declared Sharia law and where policemen are afraid to go in, where these are almost like separate countries within a country. Can we stop this before Canada has these particular no-go areas? What would you suggest that we do concretely to, to prevent this? Well, we concretely must talk about it, number one. I mean, number that's, one. What, that's what you're doing, you know, and that's what our, um, the book is all about. I mean, writing a book, getting ideas across. It is that we have to be able to open and discuss these matters and not allow ourselves to be suffocated. You know, we must bring uh, the issues on the table. The politicians will only act whichever way they want to act is when the public pressure is upon them. Uh, you, you talk about Europe and, and, and right now and the problem, no, no-go no zone, etc. Well, I think in, in Canada we are also uh, in, in some ways building it up. I mean, in Toronto there are almost, you might say, the seeds of no-go zone in Thorncliffe Park, you know, the school system where we have the public schools which is clearly, you know, secular, separation of religion and state. You cannot say the Lord's Prayer in school, and yet, you know, in, in these uh, uh, districts in, in our country, like in Toncliffe Park area, the, the school is providing space for during class hour for congressional Muslim prayers, you know, and, and, and people are allowing this to happen. A double standard. Double standards and all the problem that is being laid down, which happened in Europe. I think we are only a few years behind Europe. But again, mm. on the other side of it, I mean, as the pressure builds up in Europe, the three major European powers, in fact, the anchor of the European Union, the heads of government, the Prime Minister of Britain, David Cameron, the Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, the President of France, Nicolas Sarkozy, they've all come out and said now, clearly, official multiculturalism has failed. Yes. The question is, what are they going to do about it? Well, the fact that they have recognized that our politicians are far behind that. Our public pressure has to bring this discussion into the open. It is the admission of the problem that leads to finding the cure. If we are going to deny that there is a problem, we're not going to find a cure. The ultimate cure there is, I would say, is to roll back multiculturalism as official policy, you know, to revoke it, to repeal it. But since uh, we have been left behind by a conservative government, by Mr. Mulroney, when he was a prime minister, he put uh, the statute of multiculturalism into our uh, our law books. And so given the fact that it's in our law book, how to repeal that, how to get it back, is going to be a hard political uh, a struggle. But I think there are hopes. I think in Quebec, people are raising this question very seriously, and maybe Quebec will set the, you know, the framework of how to proceed on this matter. You know, it almost takes a culture to beat a culture, a, a cultural trend in a way. Uh, you know, I don't think we can point to a single policy called multiculturalism as such and point to it. For example, you just brought up the, the issue that's going on in Toronto. with we, We're seeing now race-based schooling and faith-based schooling coming back in. Uh, both McGinty and Hudak support it. Would they call that official multiculturalism? No, of course they wouldn't. They would call it education. Education for all, right? And that's how it permeates itself into the system. How do you... We have to have a a cultural revolution ourselves in a way. Look, I think uh, think as uh, uh, we have tied ourselves, you know, like Mm -hmm. Gulliver. There's no Lilliputian out there, but we have tied ourselves. We have given all this sort of uh, uh, coil to put us into this problem. It is not a problem. You know, you as a taxpayer, I as a taxpayer, as individuals, we have the choice where we will direct our money. So if there's a faith-based school based upon the people who are running it, you know, and not going to the public coffer, that's fine. I have no problem with that. Is the question when the state becomes involved. 
and the states start discriminating. And official multiculturalism is a direct state discrimination against the majority population that has been brought up in the culture which is liberal democracy. We don't live outside of cultures in a sense, but the culture which is most open, that the culture of an open and free society is liberal democracy. Now, what do you think of the elementary schools, the high schools, and the universities and the way that they're teaching children that all cultures are equal of our respect when in fact they are not? Do we have to educate not only the populace, but we have to educate the educators? Absolutely. I mean, we have to be able to challenge them. And the question is, you know, the educators are not above and beyond the society. If we are an open society and we are a free society, that is what we claim to be. We are a liberal democratic society. Then we should be, that the common public should be able to hold their political elite to questions, accountability. The, the system has to be transparent. On what basis does a professor in anthropology or in political science or wherever makes the claim that all cultures are equal? On what basis? And so that has to be questioned. That has to be challenged. It is not to be rude and impolite. It is to be clear upon what we are talking. Uh, I think one of the roots of that misassumption came from the concept of equal rights when equal rights became misinterpreted to mean equality of, of actual person and kind rather than of rights before and under the law. Isn't that the ultimate answer? To, to not say that all cultures are equal, but all individuals have the same rights under the law. Would that not go a long way if government did not choose to uh, pick winners and losers in the in, well, in the social marketplace, if well, you want to put it that Bob, way. Bob, I end my book mm -hmm. with that observation that, you know, once we have asserted, and this was an assertion made in the West, once we have asserted that all men are created equal, that our equality, that is the generic man, or irrespective of our ethnicity, our religious belief, etc., I mean, that is what the American Declaration mm. of Independent States. All men are created equal. Once we have made that assertion, we have reached the political summit. There's no further place to go. This, you know, from beginning from Plato and Aristotle to that point. Anything after that is a degradation, is a decline, is a walking away from that. That's what official multiculturalism is. Equality is the equality of individuals. It is a slate of hand to say, now all cultures are equal because individuals are equal. No, certainly not. And that, and that makes the, the issue much easier because we talk about we have an assumption uh, that all cultures are equal, but we can have an assumption that all individuals are equal until they prove otherwise. Uh, would that be... Well, well, uh, well we, have, we have made the issue of all men are born equal, that hmm. all individuals are equal, a fundamental axiomatic principle. You just cannot make up by a slate of hand saying now that something else is equal. Yes, we are all equal. As I tell my students, my fingerprint, my thumbprint, and your thumbprint is not the same. But if I need a heart, I can get your heart, you know, to beat in my body, and my kidney function in your body, you know. We are both yes. different and equal, you know. So it is the individual that is the issue. This is the great advancement that was made in the making of liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. This is the struggle that begins going back all the way from Magna Carta to the establishment of the rights of man, the American Declaration exactly. of Independence. Well, it sounds like a, an excellent uh, book to wrap up. I understand you're having an event next week. Is that correct? Uh, huh. At the Lamplighter. And it's... Well, friends, friends are organizing that. The International Free Press Society yes. has 
you know, extended their support uh, to help promote the book. I'm very grateful to the International Free Society, the Canadian branch of it, you know, and uh, they um, have come together under the leadership of Mary Lou Ambrosio, who is the vice president of the International Free Press Society in Canada, to get this event together on September 8 at Lamlighters, and I'm very grateful to them, and I hope to see both of you, Bobs, over there. I'll certainly be in attendance, and um, what time is that at the Lamplighter? Um, I, I was told that it the doors got, open got at 6.30. Right yeah, 6.30, event begins at 7. It's at the Lamplighter Inn on September 8th. And books will be available there, by the way. Books will be available for sale. It is also open to the public. Please attend and meet Salim and hear about his book, Delectable Lie, A Liberal Repudiation of Multiculturalism. And Bob, why don't we uh, wrap it up? Better go, and let's we're out of here now. Thank you, Salim. We'll see you again sometime. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll be back again next week, and we hope you'll enjoy us again. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Where are the Jews at? Jews in the house? All right, Arabs, the Jews are in here. Go talk to them. You've got some hugging to do.